a faithful farmer. The word faithful means dedicated, steadfast, and constant. So here's what I'm going to do for you today because I love you so much. I'm going to prove to you biblically and scientifically, everybody say scientifically, that every single thing you choose to do for the kingdom of God matters and affects every single person alive on planet earth. A lot of times we read the Bible, we come to church, and we have these thoughts on, I want to affect the world. I want to change the world. I want to do something great. I want to leave my mark. I want to I leave a harvest for people to be changed. I want to do something great. And then we have this thing that comes up in our mind that says this, the only way that's going to happen is if I part a Red Sea or if I slay a giant or if I lead a revolution or if I march against apartheid, or if I'm the, fa the face for women's rights all over the world, or if I become president, or if I get a million dollars, that's the only way I can change the world, and that is a lie. I'm going to prove to you scientifically today that if you will simply be faithful in the routine of life, faithful in the little, faithful behind the scenes doing whatever it is God's calling you to do, whether it's to be the best stay-at-home mom you can be, whether it's to be a Sunday school teacher, whether it's to sing in the choir, whether it's to be part of a short group, whatever you know God's called you to do in this season, your faithfulness, your loyalty, your steadfast, constant, dedicated self, those little things that God's trusted you with, if you're faithful in those areas, it can literally change the entire world. Um, I'm going to tell you four stories. The first one is a simple one that you already know, and that is of the five loaves and two fish story, you know, the, the little boy. So Jesus was preaching to thousands of people. He was, the Bible says 5,000, but in reality it was about 20,000 because they only counted uh, men during that time. And there were women and children there, so about 20,000 people. Even if it was just 5,000, that's still a miracle. And so Jesus didn't want to send everybody home hungry, and so he asked the disciples, is there any food around and in Luke 9, 13, they said this, there's a boy with five, he, he's, he went through Captain D's on his way here. And he went to Captain D's and he got a little kid's meal and that's all we have. And here's what they said, that will certainly not be enough. Everybody say not enough. Now, I've been teaching you the past four weeks that any time in life you are in need, because God needs to supply all your needs. So if there's ever a time where you're in need, then obviously there's a seed that you have that has not been sowed. There's been something you have not given to God, something that needs to be planted that you possess, but if you will release it to God, then he can provide your needs for you. And this little boy had something very small. It was a very small seed. It was not that big of a deal. Not only that, but he wasn't a doctor or a lawyer or a televangelist or, or he didn't have a, a million followers on social media. He was a little boy, a little boy. And all he had was a Happy Meal. And when Jesus said, will you give this to me? He was willing to give the little seed that he had. And if you know the story, it says that Jesus blessed it and broke it. There's a deeper thing there where we need to be blessed and broken in our life to see multiplication. And Jesus took that, and if you study it really carefully, you find that the multiplication did not occur in the hands of Jesus. It occurred in the hands of the disciples who began to pass it out. When it was all said and done in verse 17, it says that everyone was full and there were 12 large baskets left over. And here's what's really cool about this story. One little boy affected the lives of 20,000 people. One little boy who was willing to give a little seed. In reality, it didn't look like it was going to do anything. In fact, the, 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 the main dudes in the story said it's not enough. 
We don't have enough for our dream to come true. We don't have enough to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. We don't have enough. And then Jesus knew, well, there's somebody here that's got a seed. Somebody's got something really small. It seems insignificant. It seems like it's not going to do much damage. It seems like it's not going to do much to the story. But when he released it to Jesus, Jesus blessed it, broke it, and it multiplied in the hands of all. And here's the point. The smallest seed can produce the biggest tree. Uh, Let me ask you an agricultural question, because that's what we've been studying the past four weeks is agriculture. When you plant an orange seed, what do you get? Okay, now see, at first I might think, well, you reap what you sow, so you plant an orange seed, you get an orange. You don't get an orange, you get an orange tree. And in the kingdom of God, listen, he will not let one seed go to waste. Every seed you sow, you're not going to get a seed back. You're going to get whatever it is you sow is going to turn into an orange seed, turns into an orange tree, which turns into many oranges, which if people take the oranges and they're willing to get what they've got and take the seed out and plant the seed, then that turns into a tree, which turns into many oranges. And if people get from that and then they take the seed, the problem is when people take and they don't plant. That's the biggest problem, was they want to take, 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 and there's no planting going on. Um, uh, there's a peach tree out here on our property. If you drive by when you leave church, you'll see it. It's not in the best condition, but it produces about 50 to 100 peaches every year. Um, I think the tree's been here since the 60s because this building was built in the 50s. And ever since I've known this property back in the early 90s, that tree's always been here. It always produces every year. Every year since we have owned this property, I have studied that tree to make sure I go out there at just the right time when the fruit is ripe. I'll look at it and I'll examine it and, I, and I'm good with that. I have fruit trees at home. I have, you know, garden, all that good stuff because uh, I have a lot of testosterone and I'm very manly. And so I, I, I examined the tree and I knew at this one, every year I say, okay, it's going to be a few more days. It'll be ripe. I don't want to get it when it's not ripe. I want to get it when it's ripe. So far, every single year since we've owned this property, people have stolen every single peach on that tree. Every peach, and I'm looking at y'all in the eyes to see if there's any of y'all doing it, if any of your faces turning red. Anyway, and so every year, in fact, last year, I went out there on a Sunday morning, checked it out, I knew, okay, tomorrow they're ripe, tomorrow I'm getting them, and I showed up on Monday with a bag ready, and as I park in the parking lot, I look out there, and there's a homeless guy at my peach tree with the, I mean our peach tree, my peach tree with a big old bag, and he's filling that thing up, and he's climbing on there, getting everything he can, and when he saw me and I saw him, I knew if I were to take a, another step forward that he was going to take off running. And as much as I wanted my stinking peaches for the first time ever, I waved at him, and then I come inside, and I stare at him through the glass of my office with laser beam eyes, <laughs> hoping he'll leave me one peach, and he didn't. He took all my peaches, and he left. Like, here's the point I want to make. I wonder how many hundreds of people over the past 50 to 60 years have eaten off of a tree that one person planted. And in life, we think that if we don't see all these trees in our life and if we don't have a million people telling us how great we're doing, we think, I'm not making an impact on the world. No, one seed. One seed is all it takes. One seed. God, God will never let a seed go to waste. Uh, Matthew 25, 23 says, when you're faithful with little, God will put you in charge of much. When you're faithful with little, it's the little things. Let me ask you another agricultural question. If a doctor planted that seed of the peach tree, if an evangelist planted that seed of the peach tree, if a five-year-old kid planted that that peach tree seed, if a stay-at-home mom planted that peach tree, 
Is it still going to produce a peach tree and affect lives? Yes. Don't ever think you have to be something else or somebody else or in the limelight to do something great in this world. Uh, story number two is this. Years ago when I was in high school, there was a, a, a guy that I was acquaintance, acquainted with. And uh, for the sake of the story, we're going to call him Nick. Now, whether that's his real name or not, I'm not going to tell you, but we're going to call him Nick for the sake of the story. Um, Nick was a very, very bad dude. I mean, he was on drugs. He smoked like a chimney. He was failing classes all the time. Um, his, his family was very poor. They were just, they, they had a poverty mentality. And um, you could tell because uh, he just, he didn't have good hygiene. He didn't take care of himself well. He wore the same two shirts every other day. His family would go from renting one place to getting kicked out and renting another to getting kicked out to renting another. And uh, he had a bad attitude, and it, I, I couldn't help but all, have the thoughts, you know, this guy's never, I mean, what's he going to do with his life? I mean, his, his family's never amounted to anything. Nothing's going to change it. How, how, is, how is this guy ever going to be a productive member of society? Uh, a few years went by, and I became a pastor, and I was 26 years old, my first year pastoring, and I was driving down 38th Avenue in Myrtle Beach, and I went to a gas station. I was pumping gas, and out the corner of my eye, I see Nick walking around begging for money from people around the gas station. I intentionally turned my back to him because I didn't want him to be embarrassed when he saw me and it just be awkward for us. But um, he saw me and it was not embarrassing for him. In fact, he was more apt to ask for money. He runs up to me and he says, hey, John Paul, you're a pastor now, man. Give me some money. I need some money for gas. And I said, oh, I said, well, I'll just put gas in your car. Well, my car is not here right now. You know, it's down the road. And I could tell he was high on drugs, and so I figured, you know what, if he's going to ask me for money, then I'm going to say whatever I want to say to him, because I just, that's how I feel it goes. And so he asked me for $20. So I said, um, I said, I'll give you $20 if you let me pray for you. He said, sure. So I gave him 20 bucks, and I can't remember what I prayed, but I'm sure it was something to the effect of God break the addictions in his life, bring the right people, close the wrong doors, do a healing miracle, let him know how much you love him, in Jesus' name, Amen. To which he said, thanks a lot, took my money and walked away. I would love to tell you when I got in my car that I thought, man, my prayer was so good and God's going to change his life and things are going to happen. But I could not help but think, and remember I was very young, very transparent with you. I thought uh, it'd be a cold day in hell if this guy ever gets his, I mean, this is just, this, this, this is the kind of person that you just don't see say, like, it's just, it's not going to happen. I mean, what, what in the world could I possibly do to help this guy have these addictions broken off his life, get in the right church. It, can anything good happen to him? A few more years went by, and I went to the convention center in Myrtle Beach for a big Jesse Duplantis conference. Jesse Duplantis is this uh, very humorous, older evangelist that's all over TV, and he loves to make people laugh and bring the Word of God across in a very, very humorous way. And I was at this conference. There were thousands of people. I've never seen the Myrtle Beach Convention Center so packed. I was on the front row, and at the end of the service, he gives an altar call to accept Jesus as the Lord of your life. And I'm just watching as hundreds of people are coming down, and I'm just sitting there worshiping, doing my thing. And I look up, and I see, would you believe? It was Nick. Now, he was at the very top row, and as soon as they said, come down to the front to make Jesus Lord, he started running down, skipping stairs. The security guards were looking like they need to stop him, and I thought this. He thought that he was coming to a free rock concert and ended up in this Christian place, and now that they're opening the exits, now he's ready to get out as quick as he can, and he runs down and he passes the first exit. 
He runs down, he passes the second exit. He runs all the way down to the front and he falls on his knees at the altar. There was so much snot coming out of his nose, they could not give him enough napkins to wipe his face. He's got one hand in the air. People are laying hands on him, praying for him, and he gave his life to Jesus. And since that day, everything's been changed. I look at him on Facebook. He's living a good life. He's got a family. He's serving God. He goes to church. He's going to be in heaven for all of eternity thanks to Jesse Duplantis coming to Myrtle Beach. But if you know the life of Jesse Duplantis, you know that whenever he was in his early 20s, he was actually high on drugs in a hotel room. He was turning the TV from one channel to the next, and he all of a sudden stopped on a Billy Graham TV special. He could not take his eyes off of that. He continued to watch till the very end when Billy Graham gave an invitation to make Jesus the Lord of your life, and Jesse Duplantis, high on drugs, in a hotel room, gets on his knees, makes Jesus the Lord of his life, 25 years later, comes to Myrtle Beach and has a conference at the convention center, and my friend Nick comes running down from the top all the way to the bottom and gives his life to the Lord. But if you know anything about Billy Graham, you know that when he was a teenager is when it all happened, when it all changed. He was at a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, put on by Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was preaching his heart out, and at the end of the service gave an invitation, and this young Bill kid comes down, 19 years old, gives his life to the Lord, becomes the great Billy Graham, gets on TV at just the right time on just the right night for Jesse Duplantis to turn that channel in his hotel room, see that TV special, give his life to the Lord, 25 years later, comes to Myrtle Beach, has an altar call at a conference for my friend Nick to come running from the top all the way to the bottom and give his heart to Jesus. But as Mordecai Ham had that revival in North Carolina, he didn't pay for it. In fact, he didn't have the money to even put it on. He had the vision for it. He knew God wanted him to do it, and he could not find the finances until a baseball player named Billy Sunday, with his influence and with his finances, decided to fund Mordecai Ham's revival. Mordecai Ham's revival was paid for by Billy Sunday, and when he preached that sermon, Billy Graham came to the front, became the great Billy Graham, was on TV at just the right time many years later for Jesse Duplantis to get on his knees in a hotel room, 25 years after that to come to Myrtle Beach at the convention center for my friend Nick to give his heart to Jesus and for his life to forever be changed. But what kind of baseball player pays for a revival put on by Mordecai Ham, where there was another minister named J.W. Chapman. J.W. Chapman had a heart for athletes, and he would go to different sporting events and ask the coaches if he could pray with his players. He talked to the players about Jesus, see if they had any questions, and J.W. Chapman started hooking up with Billy Sunday. They started a relationship. Billy Sunday gave his life to Jesus and later funded and paid for Mordecai Ham's revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, where Billy Graham would come down to the altar and later become the great Billy Graham, who would be on TV at just the right time in that hotel room for Jesse Duplantis to watch it and give his life to Jesus. So 25 years later, he could come to Myrtle Beach for my friend Nick, who didn't have a chance in hell, is now going to be living pretty on cloud nine with Jesus for all of eternity. But if you know J.W. Chapman, you know that whenever he was a young guy and started off in ministry, he came this close to giving up. In fact, J.W. Chapman was about to throw in the towel and change professions, and he thought, I'm going to give it just one more weekend to see what God wants to do. He went to a Bible college where there was a lecture being put on by D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody gave a sermon entitled, Do Not Give Up. Be willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When D.L. Moody preached that sermon, it rekindled a fire inside of J.W. Chapman. 
He later found his niche in the area of athletes and began to minister to different athletic figures around the nation. He met up with Billy Sunday, who gave his heart to Jesus. Billy Sunday then funded that Mordecai Ham revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, where a young kid named Bill would come down to the front and later become the great Billy Graham, who would be on TV at just the right time for Jesse Duplantis to turn on the television, see that broadcast, give his life to Jesus, and 25 years later, come to Myrtle Beach for my friend Nick, who I could not minister to, to come down to the altar and give his life to the Lord and now live in eternity in Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. But D.L. Moody, when he was a young guy in high school, he hated church. He fell asleep every single Sunday. He did not even like his Sunday school teacher. He had a Sunday school teacher who was relentless in his pursuit for these teenagers. His name was Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was given a little seed. He had three or four teenagers who he taught every Sunday. They'd fall asleep. They'd make fun of him. They didn't care about coming to church. Their parents made them come to church. Edward Kimball thought, God, are you going to do anything great in my life? Do you have anything awesome planned for me? God, I'm doing my best. I'm faithful. I show up every Sunday. I only have two or three teenagers that even come to class. One day, Edward Kimball took off work and he decided to visit each one of these teenagers. He went to a shoe shop where D.L. Moody was working. He sat down with D.L. He said, listen, I know you don't like me. I know you don't care for church, but let me tell you, Jesus loves you. And if you'll be willing to turn your life over to him, he will do something great in your future. That day in 1855, a faithful Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball poured into a young kid named D.L. Moody who grew up and preached a sermon at a Bible college on just the right day for J.W. Chapman to hear and not give up on ministry, who later found Billy Sunday as he was ministering to athletes who would later pay for Mordecai Ham's revival, for Billy Graham to come down to the altar and become the great Billy Graham who would later be on television at just the right time for Jesse Duplantis to turn it on in that hotel room, high on drugs, give his life to Jesus, 25 years later would come to Myrtle Beach for my friend Nick to be in heaven with me for all of eternity. You may not be the next Billy Graham, but you could be the Edward Kimball that sows the little seed that changes millions and millions and millions of lives forever and ever and ever. And you might not see it till you get to heaven, but that's okay. One seed can produce one tree that can produce hundreds of fruit that can produce thousands of seeds. The question is, are you going to stay faithful with the little? It's the little things that produce much. In Exodus, my third story, in Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites we're facing the Amalekites. The Amalekite was a very evil army looking to enslave and destroy God's people. And there was this big battle taking place. Two million Israelites, a few million Amalekites. And Moses was an old man at the time, so he could not be down there in the middle of the battle. He was up on a mountain watching it all take place. Joshua was leading the Israelites into this battle, and they were victorious. They won the battle. In fact, verse 13 says... Joshua totally defeated the Amalekites. Wow, man, imagine two million people celebrating. Imagine a party like you've never seen before. The feasting, the dancing, the music, the celebration. They're writing stories. They're telling their kids how great it was. And Joshua led two million people.
people into battle. But if you go back a few verses, you find that when Moses was on top of the mountain, him and God had a pact together. It says in verse 11, when Moses had his arms in the air, Israel prevailed. But when he got tired and lowered his arms, Amalek prevailed. So in reality, two million people won a battle while Joshua led them into victory all because an old man was on top of a mountain holding his arms in the air and praising God. But if you know anything about being an old man, you know that you can only hold your hands up for a certain amount of time. The battle lasted hour after hour into the wee hours of the night. And in verse 12, it says that Aaron and her held up Moses' hands, one on one side and one on the other, until Amalek was defeated. So in reality, Joshua leading two million people into battle happened because there were three old dudes behind the scenes just ushering, just encouraging, standing in the choir, bringing water bottles in, paying for the electricity to be turned on, doing things that you would never know and never see and think, man, how is that going to affect anybody? And little did these two million people know there were three guys up on a mountain that helped them win the battle. Listen, you may be retired. You may think, man, if this were 20, 30 years ago, I'd have the energy and I could help in this area and I could do that and I could be in the limelight up on the stage. I don't have it. Oh, I used to make so much money and I could have paid for this and paid for that. All you may be is the encouragement behind the scenes. But everything you do matters. Every seed you sow matters. Let me prove it to you scientifically. In the 1960s, I think it was 1963, a man named Edward Lorenz wrote this doctoral thesis called The Butterfly Effect. The Butterfly Effect states that any moving piece of matter affects every moving piece of matter. It states that a butterfly can flap its wings in Asia and it can produce molecules of air that produce molecules of air that produce molecules of air that can affect a hurricane in North America. When he gave this thesis in 1963 to a New York board, they laughed him out of the room. They told him he was absolutely out of his mind, failed him completely. In fact, this story of the butterfly effect, it ended up going into comic books, into bad movies, laughed everywhere until finally in the early 1990s, it was proven 100% accurate. It proved that every single thing that moves affects every single thing that moves. In other words, if I were to take a seed that's about this big and I plant it in the ground, once the roots start to grow, the roots were not there before. Now that I've planted the seed, the roots are there, and the roots are moving dirt, which is affecting the whole earth. If that little seed turns into a redwood tree, and you got thousands of pieces of furniture that come out of it, imagine how that affects the world. In other words, everything affects everything. The reason this is very important to me is because I study I suicide a lot because um, pastors commit suicide a lot. In fact, it's the number one profession of suicide um, um, all around the world. And they don't tell you that because they don't want people to not go into ministry. 
But um, a guy in California killed himself a few weeks ago, a pastor, another pastor a few months before that. It happens all the time. And the reason people commit suicide, I've discovered, in fact, the number one reason that former military commit suicide is because they think their life doesn't matter anymore. They think they don't have the effect they once had when they were younger, when they had the camaraderie of their buddies, when they're fighting with a gun in their hand, fighting for our freedom, trying to save lives, and then they're retired or they don't do it anymore or they don't have these people backing them up, and they say, man, my life doesn't matter, and they commit suicide. But your life does matter. In fact, the butterfly effect was so truthful that it was given the status of a law. The law was called the law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions. This law is in effect whether you believe it or not, just like all of God's principles or laws. The law of sowing and reaping occurs whether you like it or not or believe it or not. You reap what you sow. Your future is dependent upon your seeds, whether you like it or not or believe it or not. It's true. The law of gravity is true and in effect whether you believe it or not. And you can say, I don't believe in the law of gravity, but if I take you up in a plane and I open up the door and I don't give you a parachute, you'll be a believer very quickly. The law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions is in effect whether you believe it or not. Every single thing you do matters, and I can prove it to you. Um, several years ago, there was a television show on ABC called ABC's Person of the Week. This is where they would take somebody famous in the world, and they'd talk about them for about an hour, I think it was. I think it was when Peter Jennings was still alive, they would do this every Friday night. And they would talk about their great accomplishments, what they did, and they would give them the title of ABC's person of the week this particular friday night the person of the week was a man named norman borlaug norman borlaug in the 1940s created a way for wheat to grow in times of famine because of his accomplishments and, and the resources he used and discovered this he was given a nobel peace prize because he saved the lives of two billion people all because he found a way for wheat to grow in times of famine, two billion lives and counting because they have babies and it, they have babies and it keeps going, all survived and lived because of Norman Borlaug. And because of that, he got a Nobel Peace Prize and ABC's Person of the Week. But when I heard that, I thought, you know what? I don't think it really should have gone to Norman Borlaug. I think it should have gone to Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was one of Roosevelt's vice presidents. Roosevelt was in term, I think, four different times. He had three vice presidents, and his middle vice president was Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was the secretary of agriculture before he was vice president. He had a passion for botany and plants and seed and harvest and what it could do for mankind. So after he became vice president, Henry Wallace used his research, his finances, his, 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 his status, his position, and he opened up a station in Mexico whose sole purpose was to find a way to hybridize wheat in arid climates. When he became vice president, he knew he couldn't run the company, so he had to hire somebody with the same passion for botany as him, and so Henry Wallace hired Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug used all of Henry Wallace's resources, all of that money at that station, and then he discovered a way to find for wheat to grow in times of famine so two billion lives could be saved. So I personally think that the ABC's person of the week should go to Henry Wallace. But what kind of man loves botany that much to spend his whole life studying seed and harvest? 
So I did some research. And I think that the ABC's person of the week should actually go to George Washington Carver. Uh, George Washington Carver was the guy who found 260-something ways to use the peanut, which we still use today. Uh, 80-something ways to use the sweet potato, which we still use many of those today. And George Washington Carver was such a good student in college. He had a professor that trusted him so much, the professor would send his six-year-old boy on weekend botanical expeditions with George Washington Carver. This, this, this professor would trust this college student with his child. And every weekend, George Washington Carver would take this young man and pour a passion into him, point his life in a direction of what could happen when you plant and when you harvest and how the world could be changed. And that little boy who was entrusted to that college student was Henry Wallace. George Washington Carver poured botany into Henry Wallace, who later grew up and became the Secretary of Agriculture, who opened a station in Mexico, who hired Norman, who hired Norman Borlaug to run it so that two billion lives could be saved, to find a way for wheat to grow in times of famine. And for that, he got a Nobel Peace Prize and ABC's Person of the Week, but I think it should go to George Washington Carver. When I was studying George Washington Carver's life, I thought, if you know anything about American history, for an African-American to be that educated during that particular time in the state he was living is very unusual. How did that happen? And I did some research and I found that there was a man named Moses. He was a farmer, a faithful farmer in Diamond, Missouri, when it was a slave state. Only Moses did not believe in slavery, so he would allow, if not take care of, African-Americans who would live in his barn, take residence, he'd give them clothing, food, and work. Until one very cold winter night, Quantrell's raiders would come through Moses' property. This was the KKK on steroids. They had potato sacks over their head, they had the eyes cut out, and they burned the barn to the ground and killed every single African-American that was there on the property except for one young lady named Mary. They tied Mary up and they dragged her with their horses as they took off running. Moses and his wife Susan stood out of their farm and they watched the barn burning to the ground. They saw the dead bodies and they screamed and yelled as Quantrell's raiders took off like cowards, dragging a young African-American woman behind them. They could tell that she was holding on to something for dear life, didn't know what it was. Moses was shocked and didn't know how to handle it. But his wife Susan was a very determined and strong-willed woman. She immediately began to send messages and word out to find where these Quantrell Raiders hung out at, where they lived, who they were. She wanted somehow to pay for the life of that woman who they dragged away. She finally, after a few days, set up a meeting between Quantrell's raiders and her husband. She sent her husband on the last horse they had left. He traveled all through the night, and he ended up at this snowy field. He's on one side and Quantrell's raiders on the other. They have the sacks over their heads, eyes cut out. Moses said, how much can I give you for the life of that woman that you dragged away? They said, we killed her. They took his horse and they threw him a burlap sack. 
When he grabbed the sack, he looked up, they had taken off. As soon as he opened it, he could see the breath coming out, turning white, just like that in the cold night. It was a newborn, naked baby boy. He opened up his jacket and his shirt, and he put the baby on the inside by his skin, closed his jacket up, and he walked all through the night in the snow to the next morning. He collapsed on the front porch of his house. His wife, Susan, grabs the little baby. They run it inside, put it by the fireplace. The baby's not crying. Looks like he's dead. They begin to massage the little baby, trying to get the blood to flow in once again, and nothing was happening. Finally, Moses and Susan said a prayer out loud. They said, God, if you'll let this child live, we will raise him as if he were our own child. We will educate this boy in honor of his mother who kept him alive while being pulled off by the KKK. Just like that, the little boy started to scream and cry. They fed him, clothed him, and that's how Moses and Susan Carver became the proud parents of George Washington Carver. They educated him, sent him to college, where he would pour into a little boy named Henry Wallace, who would grow up and be the vice president and hire Norman Borlaug, who would save the lives of two billion people. So in reality, I think that a strong-willed, determined farmer's wife deserves ABC's Person of the Week. Unless, <laughs> that's all. <laughs> the point. You know, you may not see the two billion lives, but if you're willing to be faithful with whatever God's entrusted you with, He can make something great out of the seed. He can make a tree that populates another tree and just keeps going on and you may not see it till you get to heaven but psalms 18:25 says to the faithful god will always show himself faithful i'm not asking you to give a million dollars today i'm not asking you to get on tv as an evangelist i'm not asking you to come up with some science experiment that you know gets you a nobel peace prize I'm asking you to be faithful in the calling that God has on your life.